everyone. Welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I'm just doing a quick intro to remind you that we are doing a rerun this week. I wanted to give my team a little bit of time off on editing podcasts. So this week is an interview that we're going to be rerunning, and it's with Matt Tenney. I actually shared this podcast with all of the management team here at Stone Age, and they were blown away. They got so much good stuff from this podcast. So the title of the podcast is How to Develop Highly Effective Leaders, and Matt is going to tell us all about how you can be a servant leader and achieve better business outcomes while being happier, kinder, more generous, more compassionate. It's a great episode to end this year as you're thinking about your goals for 2024 and how you can improve your leadership skills. This is filled with all kinds of nuggets. So Please enjoy, and I hope you have a very, very, very lovely holiday season. Merry, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And the podcast coming out the week of New Year's is going to be an advice from a CEO. So again, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and we'll see you after the first of the year. Thanks. Hi, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I hope you're having a fantastic day today. My guest this week is Matt Tenney. Matt is so passionate about developing highly effective leaders who serve and inspire greatness in others. And I agree, that is my passion and my mission too. And that's why I love this interview so much. Matt is a social entrepreneur and the author of Serve to Be Great, Leadership Lessons from a Prison, a Monastery, and a Boardroom. He is an international keynote speaker, a trainer, a consultant with the prestigious Perth Leadership Institute, whose clients include numerous Fortune 500 companies. He works with all kinds of organizations, helping them develop highly effective leaders who achieve lasting success by focusing on serving others and inspiring greatness in the people around them. I love that Matt envisions a world where the vast majority of people realize that effectively serving others is the key to true greatness. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and we have a fantastic conversation. So hang tight, and I will be right back with Matt. All right, everyone, I am back with Matt Tenney. Matt, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. All right. I want to jump into your story because it's fascinating. And I think that my listeners will really appreciate it. But maybe you could talk a little bit about your passion around leadership and what you do and who you be on a day to day basis. Sure. Yeah. So I have this kind of crazy vision that I'm actually starting to believe more and more that it can come true. So I, I imagine a world in which the vast majority, if not all, leaders and the cultures that they are a part of consistently make a positive impact on the well-being of the team members that are in that organization. And, you know, I don't think it takes a whole lot of extrapolation to see, well, if that were to come true, I personally believe that that would create the conditions for a permanent end to poverty and violence and other unnecessary suffering. So that's why I do what I do. And as of late, I feel like I've created the conditions for that to be more likely to happen in my lifetime. It probably won't happen in my lifetime, but at least we can really lay the groundwork for that to be a potential reality just by realizing that there's a scalable process that people can follow to create cultures that not only drive high performance, but also 
consistently make a, a positive impact on the well-being and the growth of team members? This is totally my belief to you. Stone Age is an employee-owned company. My vision is to create a thousand millionaires, not because, you know, I mean, yes, it's great to be able to create a thousand millionaires, but it's around that whole idea of changing the narrative where wealth creation happens through capitalism. You know, capitalism can be a really good thing, but we've gotten off track because it's always, it's been about making money, making money, making money, right? How do you create value for your shareholders? And it's really about your stakeholders. And for me, my shareholders are my employee employees. So when you look at how you build an organization that puts your employees first and they get to share in the success of it through ownership, which we know is, you know, the fastest way to generate wealth in the United States is ownership in businesses. Mm -hmm. Can we be part of what you're talking about, right? Changing the way that businesses operate so that we can tackle some of these hardest challenges that the world faces. So I hear you. And so I was so excited to interview you. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear what you're doing. I mean, that's huge. And you're right. And, you know, there tends to be this perception that those two ideas that really creating an environment that has a positive impact on team members and having a very high performance culture, like they're somehow contradictory or mutually exclusive yep. and nothing could be further from the truth. There's a study I like to cite. It was some research conducted by Harvard researchers, Cotter and Heskett back in, the, I think it was the late 80s, mid 90s, something like that. It was kind of groundbreaking for its time. But I think this is pretty good evidence that these two things are not mutually exclusive. So they tracked 207 companies that were publicly traded over a period of 11 years, and they were looking at the difference between cultures that really made it a top priority to identify what people needed to do and be their best, to create strong cultures that took care of people versus companies that were purely profit-focused. And the companies that focused on creating the right environment crushed it. I think over 11 years, if I remember right, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, the People-focused companies increased their net income by something over 700%. I don't remember. I think it was 724. And the profit-focused companies increased their net income by 1% over 11 years. And that translated into a 900-plus percent increase in stock price for the people-focused companies versus something on the order of like 74%, I think it was, so maybe 75 for the profit-focused companies. And I don't think it's, it takes rocket science to break down why this is, right? It's because if you think about what really is the engine of an organization, it's the people in it. You, know, you could have the best strategy in the world. If you can't inspire people to effectively execute on that strategy, it's not going to do you much value. Maybe none, <laughs> right? So you know, creating this environment where people are thriving and where they can do and be their best is what brings a good strategy to life. And if you don't take care of people. I mean, it's, I think, I don't think it's hard to see what happens, right? You, those people, the team members in the organization are the ones serving your customers, all your stakeholders, actually indirectly or directly. And if those people start to fail to serve the customer and your organization thereby fails to serve the customer, well, we live in a capitalistic society, my friends, somebody's going to swoop right in there and they'll serve the customer for you. We all know this, right? It's just the trick is like, how do we do it? How do you do it in a consistent way while still having the financial success that we want to have in an organization? I think that's the key that people are looking for. Yeah. All right. Good. So give it, tell us your secrets. <laughs> how do you do it? <laughs> I think there's actually a process to this. And so ultimately what we're talking about is driving, driving engagement. We're talking about employee engagement. And you're probably aware of this, Carrie, being in the space that you're in, that 
Gallup has been measuring employee engagement for a little over 20 years. And, you know, we know exactly what drives employee engagement. We have decades of research telling us, much of it coming from Gallup, telling us exactly what drives employee engagement. And in the U.S. alone, companies have spent hundreds of billions, with a B, of dollars over the last 20 years on leadership development and employee engagement surveys and initiatives trying to improve employee engagement. Do you know how much progress we've seen in the last 20 years? Hardly any. Zero. <laughs> Statistically yeah. speaking, none. When the numbers, when they, in 2001, 30% on average of employees in the U.S. were engaged. The last time I saw the numbers, it was 32. So 2% over 20 years is statistically insignificant. And so when I first realized this, it just made me go bonkers for a second. Like, how could this be? How could we know what drives engagement and spend all this, devote all these resources trying to improve it and not make any difference? And I think if I, this may sound, I hope this doesn't sound too grandiose, but I think I've realized exactly why this is. And there are three reasons. There are three reasons for this that, People have identified these reasons individually, but I don't, I'm not aware of anyone who's really connected how interrelated they are and interconnected these three are. So the first one is that this idea of having a strong culture and employee engagement is generally perceived as being an HR thing, right? It's almost a lot of us in operations think we can just go to HR and they're going to sprinkle some magic HR fairy dust all over our culture and we're going to have high levels of engagement and retention, right? That's a problem because we're focusing on the wrong variables. We, t- we, we, we tend to focus on the wrong things if we think this is an HR thing, principally because the data is really clear on this. At least 70% of employee engagement is driven by managers. It's not all these, co- it's not perks, it's not benefits, it's not a cool office. It's how well a manager is taking care of people. Now, here's the second problem. Even when we do know this and we invest in leadership development, depending on which research you read, there's two authorities in this space that are, there are no slouches. I think one of them has published this at Cornell. But somewhere between 85 and 90% of leadership training makes no lasting impact. It's essentially a waste of time and money. And so that's clearly a problem. And then the third one is, The very act of measuring employee engagement almost always has a negative impact because we do these really big annual surveys. We ask 70 questions on this thing. And by the very nature of asking so many questions, it takes a long time to act on it, right? It takes a month just to figure it makes sense of the data. Then it takes a month or two to come up with a plan for how we're going to respond. And by then, employees are thinking like, What survey? They've forgotten about it. And they're thinking, why did you waste my time with a survey if you're not going to do anything about it? So I realized these three things, they're actually interconnected. And to fix employee engagement, all three of them need to be fixed. And actually, they can be because there's a way to to bring all of them together to synchronize them in a way that improves engagement. Awesome. So I'm so with you. And even though I haven't looked at how to put them together, I, I feel the same thing. And I tell everybody here... While the buck stops with me from a culture perspective as the CEO of the company, every single one of us make up this culture, every single one of us. And that's really powerful if you choose to step into it. And how are you looking at, you know, how you work with others? How, what is your attitude? What's your mindset? How do you lead yourself? 
How do you take feedback? All of those things and what you do every day is collectively making up the culture. And and at first, when I started saying that, this was years and years and years ago, people kind of like, you know what? No, like that's you. This culture isn't good, which we've always had a good culture. That's on you. And I think that people now really have like this sense of ownership of like, I am responsible for it. Whether you're at the top of the company or whether you're an individual contributor in a department within the company, what you do, how you show up matters. And so I think that's a really important piece of this. And that's what it goes to this whole idea that it's not HR's job. It's every single manager, every single leader, and every single individual, everything is every individual self-leader, I should say, that is responsible for making up the culture. And that is so powerful. That means that even if it feels overwhelming to change, like we can change it. We can change it if we all are inspired, motivated, and given the power to be able to do that. Absolutely. And it's not to say that HR isn't an extremely, the people ops professionals are extremely valuable partners in this process and can really guide Absolutely. the process. But if we just assume that it's their job, like if our, if our turnover is high or engagement is low, that that's their problem. That's the wrong, that's the wrong way to think. They're just, they are there to help us understand what we as leaders need to do. And as you mentioned, individual contributors, because it's all, we're, we're that's, you're right. I mean, every person's actions is what defines the culture. If somebody were to walk through and just see how people treat each other, they're going to immediately create a perception of this is what it's like here. That's your culture, right? It, the, you can have, totally. I don't care what you post on the wall as your core values or what you say your fancy mission and vision statements are. They're, somebody could just walk through and see how people treat each other, how they interact with customers and know, uh, okay, that's their culture. I love that. I'm so glad you said that. I'm a huge believer. I used to have a huge wall, a list of values. And when we've been employee owned for decades, but we did a formal ESOP in 2015 and that was different. Employees before the ESOP employees were buying stock in the company. And then after the ESOP, it was entitlement benefit. And so it just changed the nature of what ownership was when you don't have skin in the game, when it's given as all, when, you know, when the way you maximize your ownership value is to stay with the company for a long time. And the formal, oh yes, formal right. ESOP, so, and now people have skin in the game that's they're right. earning through um, exactly. time, through, I'm guessing, yeah, right? Exactly. Right. So how to maximize the benefit is to, you know, stay with the company for a long time and be able to roll that over into retirement. But still, there's still this ownership benefit. It's still this ownership mindset that we're looking for. So we created the own it mindset and we got rid of all of our values. And we said, what are the most important things to us as individuals, as human beings, and to us as teams and to us as a company to serve our customers? So we got rid of all of that. And we said our three values and everything that we do to make this company great is one, practice self-leadership. So how do we teach people how to, to step into self-leadership? I mean, we're always leading ourselves, right? It's either do we do it well or do we do it poorly? So how do we teach people how to have courage and to speak up and to um, take ownership, to be accountable? The second one is be a great teammate, right? How do you fit in with the team? Are you, do you want to take credit? Do you put yourself first or do you put the good of the team first? Are you that person who's going to step in? and help the team when they need it? Or are you the first person to go home? And then the third one is deliver on the Sony Assurance promise, which is our promise to our customers. And it was amazing how when we got rid of all the rest of the noise and we just said, this is who we are, this is who we've always been. And we're making it very, very simple to understand, practice self-leadership, be a great teammate, 
you know, make sure we're taking care of our customers. It changed everything about the way people engaged within our culture, right? They now understood these are the expectations. These are the behaviors that I need to exhibit to be successful. I know the company is going to help me because not all of us are good at all of those things. You know, there's always a weak point for every one of us. And it just really changed the culture here. And I think it really lends it well into what you're saying is that, right, you have to live, breathe, act your values if they're going to be real. And and so many companies miss that boat. Why do you think it is? Why do you think it is so hard? Well, I think in some cases, it's just a matter of never doing what you did and really getting clear on what the values are. I mean, if you look, if you were to just kind of look at a typical website, you see values, they're all the same thing, right? Honesty, yeah. integrity, which by the way, I mean, to me, honesty is a component of integrity. It's a measurable behavior that's an element of integrity, but things like that, where it's just, what's another one? Like hard work, you know, think different variations of that excellence, you know, and you haven't really thought about the organizations just kind of realize, well, we, we should have core values. Everyone else seems to do this. So let's have some and let's print them up and have them on a wall. But if we don't really take the time to think, well, you know, if you're a founder with a small team, then they can be your values, right? And then you hire people who share those values. But if if you're in a position like you were, where you've been around for a while and you realize, well, we've got 20 values. So those aren't core values. That's just a bunch of stuff on a wall, right? What's really core? And to me, it's almost like you replaced values with priorities, which are, that's not a bad thing, but this, that, that to me is, that's a huge, very big, important, a very important step for making sure that people are, are doing what, what we want to do on a consistent basis is making sure we're all clear on our priorities. Like wh wh who comes first? Okay, well, I need to take care of myself first before I can take care of anyone else, right? That's your first priority. Second one is we need to take care of each other as a team because if we don't do that, we're not going to serve the customer. So, you know, that, that just helps people in their decision-making. But so one, I think one is that people just haven't really thought about, you know, if you have a big group, then we have to figure out, well, now we're a team. I, as the founder, can't just espouse the values necessarily that unless you're just willing to let go of a good number of people who don't share those values. So that's, it, it's hard, right? And in fact, there's a, there's a, that's a whole nother topic. If you haven't, if you're not aware of Chris Edmonds work, he's got a great book on this called the culture engine that writes out like how to do this. If you're at a spot where you really want to reformulate your values. And then he talks about creating like a, a, a values kind of document, like a constitution almost. And okay. it's, he really has a good process around this. But the other part of it is, so even if we do take some time and really articulate what is core to us, what is it that we value most, what's most important to us, then the issue is we all have habits that don't serve us well. And those are very, very hard to break. And so it, it's a lot of work to consistently live what is most important to us. It takes, it takes a lot of thought. It takes having systems in place to create the environment where that can happen. And it takes holding each other accountable to, to those things. Yep. The, the downside, of course, is that every day that people are allowed to come to work who aren't living those values, you're basically telling everyone like, oh yeah, that's just another bunch of words on a wall. <laughs> you know, so I think that's probably the third component is that I'm not sure values are often taken seriously enough. People aren't hired and uh, based on values, they're not 
made free to go play on another team if, if they're not living those values. And yeah, so that's that, those are probably the three components that I've seen um, most generally. Yep. And and I, I agree with you when you nail it. And I would say our own mindset is like a constitution. Mm -hmm. I wrote this book, yeah, so, uh, The Culture Engine, so I'm going to go check it out. But the, the driving reason why we actually did it is that we were, were growing really fast and we were hiring people and they didn't understand what it meant to be an owner. Mm. And when we had to let people go, we, we would say things like, you know, you're just not being a great teammate. You know, you're not leading yourself well. Like, and they want to know why. Right? Like, They're like, what do you mean? Well, like, what, what, why does that mean? You know, where is it that that's part of my job description? And that was when I said, okay. We're growing really fast. We need to hire and fire people by our set of values. Own a mindset has to percolate through everything that we do, and it does. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that our, I don't hear an employee talking about the own it mindset. But that was really what drove it. It was that like we are not we are not setting our employees up for success, and we're not doing our job as leaders if we say that somebody is being let go for something that they didn't understand was an expectation. Right. And, and that was, that was a driving factor for doing what we did. And it dramatically changed the way that we work. We, we came up with this about six or seven years ago now. And it, you know, I mean, I don't want to say like, it's almost kind of cult-like cause that's not the right word, but like, it's real. <laughs> the own it mindset is real yeah. here. And we talk about it every single day. Awesome. Well, it's, uh, you know, there are, by my lights, and and I think this, you know, when I was referring earlier to we know exactly what drives employee engagement, there are 14, maybe 15, it kind of depends on how you divide them up. But I usually talk about 14 needs that are essentially universal, meaning they apply to every type of person and every type of organization, almost, you know, maybe 95%-ish, something like that, that are, we have decades of research telling us these are drivers of engagement and clarity of expectations is one of those, right? There, there's a, I think that if I remember right, Gallup says that is, if not the most, it's the second or yeah. third most strongest correlation with high levels of stress at work is not having clear expectations. Yep. Not having the tools you need to do your job and not having, uh, not knowing, you know, what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Those totally. two are huge drivers of stress. And Anything that's creating stress and frustration is the is taking you in the opposite direction of engaged. You know, I just, I literally today just put out a LinkedIn post because I, I get this question a lot. It's like, oh, my culture, my company isn't like this. We, you know, the, comp the corporate culture isn't great and I don't see us changing. And so I think a lot of leaders or managers just resign to the fact that this is the way it is. I'm like, no, you can do something. I was like, there's three things you can start doing today. It does not matter what your cor corporate culture is. One, you can get to know your employees, right? Because we know that according to Gallup, right? Employees want to know that their manager cares about who they are and what their goals and their dreams are. Two, make sure everybody's on the same page, right? Miscommunication is so frustrating when team members are pulling in different directions or people feel like they don't have pertinent information to do their jobs. I mean, any manager can do that. You can clarify expectations. You can bring your team into the fold. You can not leave them in the dark about things. And then the third one is acknowledge, right? Nobody ever says, oh, I get enough praise all the time. Like no <laughs> one ever says that, right? Yeah. And so it's really, you can, even if you have a, a poor corporate culture, you can have a great team culture. If you as a manager decide, I'm going to do these things because this is what great management does. It has nothing to do with what my company does. Yeah. 
Yeah, that comes back to that whole misperception that, you know, culture is an HR thing or like it's the C-suite and the senior people ops people that are determining what our culture is. No, I don't. I mean, your culture could be as an organization could be pretty bad, actually. But if you have a team that no matter how bad the surrounding culture is, there's a lot that you can do to drive engagement and improve, make a positive impact on people's well-being and their growth. And that's really, I mean, I think this is one of the most powerful, other than what you illustrated, you know, caring about team members. When managers care about team members, that's according to Gallup. And I, I personally believe this as well, just based on my experience and different research I've read. That's the number one driver of employee engagement is when an employee feels like their direct supervisor cares about them as a human being. That's huge. That can insulate a human being from a, a culture that's kind of toxic elsewhere in the organization. And so likewise with meaning, you know, I think a lot of organizations think like, oh, how do we create meaning at work? We should have a really compelling vision statement, you know, what we're going to, how we're changing the world and a really awesome mission, how we're changing the lives of our customers. And then we need to connect the work of our team members to that mission and the vision. And I don't disagree with that. That is great. But depending on the size of your organization, I mean, I would imagine some frontline people, they, they're not going to connect with the vision of the whole organization very often, if ever. But that doesn't mean you can't create meaning because the most what makes life more meaningful than anything is consistently adding value in the lives of the people that you are immediately interacting with right around you. So if you can create a team where people, the, the top priority is we take care of each other. I know that when I go into work, everyone on my team has my back and I have theirs. People go home every day feeling as though their day was meaningful because they know that they help somebody. Somebody helped them. Their conversations around dinner aren't about how the whole company is toxic. Their, their conversations are, about, oh, man, I had this opportunity to help Susan today. She was stuck with something. I took about 20 minutes. We worked on it together. It was, it was awesome. That's the those are the conversations that they're having, right? Anybody can do that. I don't care if your company makes widgets. You know, <laughs> like, I don't, it doesn't matter. As long as you're not, your, your products and services aren't actively harming people, you can have a meaningful culture by creating a team environment where nothing is more important than lifting each other up, helping each other to be great. And that's actually the kind of the first step. Um, I've created a, a four-step process that helps teams and, and organizations to make this shift because it can't happen overnight. That's one of the big problems, right, is we think like, I'm going to read this one leadership book. And then I'll forever be a much better leader, right? Or I'm going to go, we're going to hire some, we're going to hire someone to come in and do a day of training. And then all of our managers are going to be 40% better than they were. It's just, it's just not how it works. I'm not, it's not, I'm not saying that a day of training isn't a value. It certainly is. However, what's it, it, for it to be a value, and this is probably why 85 to 90%, this is the primary reason 85 to 90% of leadership development doesn't do any, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't make any impact is that. It's not followed up with systems that help the information delivery that just happened turn into new behaviors that are then repeated that then become habits that last. That very rarely happens um, in organizations. And that's probably why leadership development generally fails to make any lasting impact. But just coming back to this idea of meaning for a team, um, if you like, I could share the, all four steps, but I was going to just share the first one for you. Maybe we could pause Yeah, I there. want you to do that. 
No, I want you to do that. But I just like to add one thing onto this whole idea of meeting at work. And then I definitely want you to, to tell us your four-step process. Um, one of the things that I've learned by working with a life coach um, who taught me the Enneagram is that we all, that there's like these three main intrinsic values. So there's self-preservation, which is, you know, uh, people who say, what, how does it impact me first, right? And all of us have some self-preservation, but there's a third of the world population that that's the main driver is, you know, the security that they feel and how does this impact me? Then you have the other third that's social, right? It's that whole team focus, right? How does this, how is this going to affect the team? What is this going to be like in my community? You know, is there harmony? How are we disrupting harmony? Are we working together? And then there's these, this transformative transformation, um, a uh, group of people who are really inspired and motivated by changing the world. And so that's when I learned that and I said, oh, okay, right. I'm one of those transformative people, right? I, other stuff like, yeah, that's great. I care about all that, but oh, I want to go change the world. But if I haven't met the needs of the people who are in the social or in the people who are in the self-preservation, then I'm going to lose two thirds of you know, of people who have to be, who, you know, we want to be part of making this, making our company great. So I went back through our own it mindset and I put language that spoke to self-pres, to social and mm. to transformative. Yeah. So that way everybody could read it and see something of themselves in it. This speaks to me here. And, um, and, and I think that that really has helped give more meaning for everybody at work because people can say, right, I'm giving you an opportunity to get better um, every day. I have an opportunity to grow in my career, or I love the people I work with and I got to help Susie out today, or I'm changing the world by making it safer and cleaner and all of those things. And so I like, I don't often share that, that, that thread, but I think it's so important when we talk about meaning mm. is how are we touching on all of those things that are important to individuals. And it's easy for us who live in a certain, you know, in one of those thirds to say, oh, everybody feels the same way. And it's just not true. So I think if you can start to think about, you know, how you build your culture, how you're treating each other, how you build recognition, how you show people that you care, and you think about those three styles, you have a winning combination for creating more meaning and purpose and work. Mm, fantastic. Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, that's when, when you're meeting the needs that people have, yeah. that's that might help to kind of go through the steps because that's actually, that's, yeah. I mean, this is like perfect. a perfect segue. Yeah. So, the, great. Let's do it. The, Tell us your steps. Sure. So, and this is the idea here is at first, I'm going to just kind of do it very simply. But I think as we dig in, you'll see how this four step process solves the problem we talked about earlier, where there's this perception that engagement and culture and retention, you know, things related to culture are HR things. It solves the problem of why leadership development doesn't work 85 to 90% of the time or le leadership development programs. And it solves the problem of how measuring engagement almost always hurts engagement and either make has no impact or drives it down. So, but it sounds so simple at first, it's, you're just going to be like, oh, that's too simple. But then when we dig deep, I think you'll see how, how this happens. So the first step is we as leaders need help. We need, we need constant reminders of what our true job is. What is our number one priority as leaders? And I would guess if you asked a hundred different people, what's the primary job of a leader? you would probably get 95 different answers, right? 
And I'm not going to put you on the spot because it's not like there's necessarily a right or wrong. Sure, what's what yours? What I think is. <laughs> oh, 100% building a team. Uh, it's all, we can't do anything without the team. So my number one job is to make sure I have a great team who can help me build this company, create this great culture. And if we don't have that, we have nothing. So that's what I think my number that's one it. job is. Yeah. So then I, I, the way I articulate it is just a little bit simpler. It's just two words. The primary job of a leader is to inspire greatness. That's it, mm -hmm. right? If you think of every leader, what is it, what is it that we're doing? I don't care if you're, you know, a coach of a soccer team, uh, you know, an executive of, for, of a Fortune 100. Yes, if you're if you have PL responsibility, you're probably in charge of strategy too. But as we mentioned earlier, strategy doesn't do you much good if no one's executing that strategy effectively. So it's at least tied. But I would even say, like, you don't have to be a good strategist necessarily, because if you create the right team, you can bring people on who are better strategists than you are, and you just get out of their way and support them, right? So, so I would say that. Um, this is our primary job. Worst case scenario, it's tied with strategy if you have PL responsibility. Um, and no one disagrees with this, right? I mean, it's almost so common sense that it's kind of like, duh. I mean, when I said you would get 95 different answers, a lot of them would probably be pointing in this direction, right? Our job is to help people to do and be their best. So the way I like to say it is to help people be happy, good human beings who do good work, or even better, help people to be happy, great human beings who do great work. And that's our job as a leader. So if, if we agree on that, which I haven't met anyone who disagrees yet, may, maybe there is somebody out there, but let's just assume we agree on this. Then there is a question that arises. Well, how do I do this? I mean, there's this perception that only a natural born charismatic person can inspire greatness in others. And that's just not true. There, there is a process to this. So the second step, is if we agree that our primary job is to inspire greatness, the second logical step is, well, we need to identify what do people need to be happy, great human beings who do great work and what's getting in the way of them doing those things or being those things, right? And there's good news here, as we mentioned earlier, there's 14 needs that are universal. So you don't have to do any work. You just, <laughs> these are, these are kind of common knowledge. Um, now there are individual needs too. And I think that's where the real gold is. That comes from meaningful interactions with team members, frequent one-to-one -one conversations that aren't just a checkup on tasks, but like really engaging with somebody. But you can start with the low-hanging fruit, which is there are needs, 14 of them, that apply to almost everyone in almost every organization. Things like clarity of expectation, having the tools to do your job, doing works, doing work that leverages your strengths, feeling appreciated, feeling like you're growing, feeling like your opinion matters, doing meaningful work. These are, these are, not they're obvious right they're, they're, these but despite the fact that they're obvious they're almost everyone's lacking them which is why one out of three employees in the u.s are engaged and two-thirds are not on average so real quick before, before we go into that if people don't know what those 14 are where can they go find them how can they understand that so it front and center can smack sure. in the face. yeah i actually wrote a blog post on this at businessleadershiptoday.com I think it's currently the featured post. It might not be that way forever, but it's just how to improve employee engagement. So you could probably Google that. I can send you a link too if you want to put it in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, I'll link all included in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can I can read the rest of them right here. It's somehow whenever I'm in the flow, I don't they don't all just come from memory for me. But let's see, we talked about meaningful work, excellence. People want to be excellent. There's good news for those of us who 
really want to have high-performing teams? Guess what? People want to be excellent. Have you ever met somebody who wakes up every morning and says, today, I would like to be mediocre. And not just today, but every day for the rest of my life. No one says that, right? It's just habits get in people's way. So this is a huge opportunity for managers because people want to be good at what they do. They want to be perceived as a, as a contributor. And if you can help them overcome what's getting in their way, that solves a huge need for somebody. They're going to be very grateful to you for that. Uh, belonging, getting frequent, regular, helpful feedback, having a sense of autonomy, trusting the people around you, particularly your managers, having a positive impact on your well-being. And as we mentioned earlier, the number one is feeling cared for by your super, by your direct supervisor. So second step is identifying those needs. Those 14 are, there's decades of research correlating those very strongly with engagement and retention. So then the third step is also pretty logical, right? Once we've identified the needs that people have, we should probably get feedback on how well we're doing. We need to get regular feedback, just as though, just like we give our A players crave regular helpful feedback. We as leaders need that. We need to know how well are we meeting these needs. And then the fourth step is we need to respond to that feedback, if not immediately, as quickly as possible. And that's where there's a hack that we've created that makes this happen, that kind of ties all this together to solve this problem of employee engagement. So what's that? <laughs> well, I didn't, I wasn't sure if you wanted to hear it. I'm happy to share. Oh, so yeah. here's the hack. Like, yeah. So with the, with the universal <laughs> needs. So here's, here's the problem with most surveys, right? Is we ask questions without having a plan beforehand as to how we're going to address the feedback. That's why there's this huge time gap. So, you know, you, you do a survey and then three to six months later, some action happens. Usually it's not very meaningful action. It's usually like, here's some extra perks or here's, you know, a workshop uh, on something. So what we recommend is we should break these, these 14 needs down into actionable behaviors, habits that people can create and get regular feedback on this. So we've broken these 14 need downs into, needs down in, into 30 habits. And, the, and we could add more, but just to keep it simple for now, we'll just keep it at 30. And the idea is instead of doing one survey every year or one survey every six months with lots of questions, you do a survey every two weeks with one question. <laughs> so how well is, how well am I as a leader uh, meeting this particular need with, with one of these habits? And here's where it gets really cool is so now if you already know what you're going to be asking and let's say regardless of the size of your team, if you're just, if you're the only leader in your organization and you've got five people reporting to you, well, you can read before you ask the question and have a plan for, here's a couple of things I could do better to grow in this area. If you want to scale this to an organization, that's where maybe what we've built is helpful is we have video trainings that are already created to help managers develop habits for meeting this need. So what happens is a survey goes out on a Tuesday the managers get their feedback two days later. So the survey is only open for two days and it's the, the feedback that they get has a training right with it. So now they, they get their feedback and they're like, okay, I thought I was doing better, but I'm a 4.2 out of six. I, I want to get better. I want to get better at this. I want to show appreciation more frequently, or I, I want to have a better impact on well-being, or I, I want to help provide more autonomy for my team members, more flexibility, whatever the case may be. And then right there, there's just a quick five minute video training that helps them with a simple habit or two 
with trip wires that they can just immediately start in five minutes. So it's, there's no barrier to entry, right? It's like, okay, I, I got some feedback I could grow. Here's a couple things I can do. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and create a, a calendar event that reminds me to do this. And then for accountability, I'm going to email my team. I'm going to say, Hey, thank you for that feedback. That's what I need to grow and be the leader I aspire to be. And I CC my boss so that now I've just told my whole team and my boss, Hey, thanks for the feedback. Here's what I'm going to do about it. If I don't do something, I look pretty dumb, <laughs> right? So I'm going to at least do something in all of these things. Not, well, maybe not all of them. I haven't, I haven't uh, analyzed it that closely, but I would for sure the vast majority of them, you see almost an immediate impact, right? If you show appreciation more frequently, you will notice a change within days. You will feel better as a manager. You'll feel happier. Your team members will be more engaged. So you get this positive feedback loop which then turns that new behavior that you're starting to try to make a habit, helps reinforce it um, and turn it into a habit that actually sticks. So that's how we, yeah. we, little by little, you know, where you were talking about being like a team inside of an organization that's kind of toxic. Well, your team can do this and it's not going to happen overnight. But if you do it little by little by little, the entire organization could do it little by little. You could turn a toxic, in 12 months, you could turn a fairly toxic organization into one that's pretty healthy with high levels of engagement. But it has to be little by little by little. It's not going to happen overnight with one book or one keynote speaker or one day of training. It's it's yeah. little habits repeated that until they become st sticky that compound right and turn into lasting behavioral change. I love that. I think it's brilliant. And, um, and I tell that people all the time and when they ask me, like, how did you create this culture? It's like, it's taken decades, right? And if you have a toxic culture, it's not just something. And I think that's where people get overwhelmed by trying to make that change. It's like, how do I do this? Right. But if you do, if you just take one small step at a time, you know, with the good, with the program, you can see those changes and it's so much less overwhelming for people. Absolutely. And maybe I'll share yeah. one habit you can take away right now, which comes back to that first step, which is if you're open to this, I highly recommend, for especially those of you who are in an organization where your job description was handed to you, um, take your job description, print it up, and, and, and just write at the top of it. I'm not saying these things aren't important, but just write additional responsibilities, set that aside, and then print up a new job description that says a, a, a primary job, which is my job is to inspire greatness in my team by serving as a coach who helps people to be happy, great human beings who do great work. And if you repeat that, you put a calendar reminder to repeat that, read it out loud three times a day. Now it's not the secret we're talking about here, right? You can't just say something that's gonna magically happen. But what does happen is every time you read that, it puts you in a different mode of thinking. Okay, my job is not just to execute tasks. My job is not just to perform all these other additional responsibilities in my job description. My primary job is to inspire greatness in my team. And that opens your radar. And little by little, it opens your radar to different things you can do, um, different ways you can grow, different opportunities right in the moment uh, that somebody you just interacted with oh, or somebody you're about to interact with where you can serve as that coach. My job is to help this person be great. And little by little, um, it does change. And this is to give you an idea of how important this is. I mean, I've heard very well-meaning leaders who consciously say they believe this. Yes, of course, everyone believes that their primary job is to inspire greatness. And then I say, great. So 
you know, how do you how do you feel about having regular one to ones? And like, oh, I do them. I have to take time away from my job to coach my team members. And I just think, no, that is your job. And, and again, these are people who want to do this. They consciously believe it. But subconsciously, we have been programmed to think that winning is most important. Hitting the numbers is most important. Executing on tasks is most important. These are all things that are easy to measure and they've been reinforced that that's what's most important. And so it takes time to reprogram our brains, our subconscious mind to see this. And it's very important that we do. I'm sure you've all experienced like the new car phenomenon, right? Where you, you see a, a um, you just bought a new car, right? And then all of a sudden you see it everywhere. Is that because you're really cool and everyone found out you had it and they went out and bought it? No, is what happened. There's parts of your brain. I think it's the reticular formation or reticular activating system and some other parts. Their job is to filter out unnecessary, unimportant information. Otherwise, we'd go crazy if that, if that didn't happen. But the moment you bought that car, it became important subconsciously to you and your brain who, that was preventing you from seeing it. You were literally blind to that car before you bought it. You now see it everywhere. That same thing can happen when you three times a day for the next 30 days, you remind yourself of what your primary job is as a leader you start to undo that conditioning that tells us winning is most important. Hitting the numbers is most important. Executing on tasks is most important. And it's hard. It, it doesn't happen overnight, but little by little, it can happen. Love it, love it, love it. I could talk to you about this all day, but we're going to have to wrap things up. And I still had so many questions for you. So <laughs> maybe next time. Yeah, you have to come back on. <laughs> all right. But I do have one final question that I ask all my guests. So the name of this podcast is Reflect Forward. What does Reflect Forward mean to you? Oh, I love that concept. It's almost to me like, and not to sound negative about it, but it's almost like a post-mortem, but in a positive sense, right? Where, you know, normally you think about reflecting backwards on all the things that, that have happened and what we could learn from it. But to me, reflecting forward is reflecting forwards and thinking in advance. Okay, if I want to achieve this goal, what does it look like? Like, what, what, are, what are steps that I need to take to get there? what are things that are likely going to get in my way of achieving this goal or my team's way? And now um, you've turned reflection on its head into something that's proactive and helps you improve strategy. So that that's uh, when I read the title of it, that's the first thing that, that I thought of is like, Oh, I love this. This is in fact, I think uh, I don't remember where I, I think this was in the culture code. I read this, but there was a, some research around goal setting um, we're just that one simple act of just asking what could prevent me from achieving my goal dramatically improves people's chances of achieving their goal. Oh my God. I love that. I mean, I know you're big on mindfulness and, um, and I am too, and, and manifesting what you want in life and the where people go wrong with manifesting is that they don't think about all of the challenges that they're going to have to overcome mm. to get what they want. Right. And I love that. Like, I think that's so important. Every time I get on stage to speak, every time, you know, I'm going after a big goal, you know, big company strategy to grow us to a billion dollars. Right. I'm always thinking through not just what success looks like, but oh, what roadblocks am I going to face? What am I going to do when I hit that roadblock? So, yeah, there's just so much power in and thinking through those roadblocks. I'm so glad you said that because it is true. If you want to truly reflect forward, we have to um, be able to, you know, to be able to not just beat ourselves up for what happened in the past, but think about what we how we want to use us to fuel us forward. And then knowing that we're going to, of course, have roadblocks in the future. Um, it's a really powerful thing. Okay. So we're going to wrap things up, but before we go, how can people find you? Um, I'm pretty Googleable. Uh, Matt Tenney is, 
It's pretty easy. If you just put that into Google, you'll find all types of fun stuff. But the website is also matttenney.com, M-A-T-T-T-E-N-N-E-Y.com. Great. Thanks for joining me. Um, This was a super fun interview. I really, really appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hang tight. I'll be right back. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt. He's such a passionate guy, and I love his thoughts on emotional intelligence, creativity, and innovation, and his process for developing better leadership, stronger leadership every day. Okay, with that, I will leave you to the rest of your day, and I look forward to hosting you on next week's episode of Reflect Forward, Advice from a CEO. And if you like this podcast, please, please, please write a review. Go to iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you are listening on and hit like, subscribe, write a review. I always appreciate it. It helps with the algorithms, and it spreads the word. Have a great day. See you next week. Thanks.